Well, tonight we're going to be studying Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs is uh, different than any other book we've studied so far, and they all are a little different. But this is very different. Uh, the Hebrew title literally is the Proverbs of Solomon. Uh, the term for Proverbs comes from the root idea, which means parallel, or it also means similar to be like. And you see it a lot in the, in the book of Proverbs, this is like that, and to be this is like that, or a wise man is like this, or a fool is like that. And that's called simile. Uh, it's, a, it's a parallel way of comparing, and it's a parallel way of teaching. Uh, the author is Solomon. He wrote at least the first 29 chapters. There are 31 chapters altogether. Augur, that's A-G-U-R, wrote chapter 30. And a man named Lemuel, L-E-M-U-E-L, wrote chapter 31. Uh, we have been taught so far by command in Holy Scriptures. As, as we've studied the Bible, uh, God gave us His laws, thus saith the Lord. And if, and if we didn't get that, then He gave it to us a second time in Deuteronomy. If that wasn't enough, we've had already, since we've started our study here, we've already had 2,000 years of history so the Israelites could learn, and they had all of this history given to them, they could learn from 2,000 years of mistakes from their ancestors. And that's all Hebrew history. You know, our country is just a little over 200 years old, and theirs was uh, over 2,000 years of, of written history that they had. And part of that was the oral tradition as well. But tonight, we have something completely different. We have Proverbs. Um, we now learn from the teachings that come out of the experiences of a man who tried out and tested just about everything that a man can experience, and was given some, some remarkable gifts. Proverb has been called a short sentence based on long experience. Um, very ancient way of teaching. Cultures throughout all of Mesopotamia taught by Proverbs at that time. Uh, proverbs are not really common uh, in our education today. But the one thing to keep in mind about a proverb is, is you are limited by the wisdom of your teacher. And if your teacher's a fool, then you're not going to go very far with your Proverbs. However, Solomon, who's the teacher in Israel, he was an absolute phenomenon. Uh, he was wealthy. He was wise. Uh, he was well-versed in songwriting because he wrote over 1,000 songs. He was well-versed in poetry because he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Only 31 survived, but he wrote over 3,000. Uh, he lectured on terrestrial biology, marine biology, ornithology, herpetology, and even ichthyology. And by the way, herpetology is, is not the science of coal sores. That's reptiles. I just thought of that. Solomon also was a political ruler, a successful businessman, a moralist, and a preacher. Basically, he was the whole package, and if you will, it, it was a very large package. The times in which Solomon lived were times of peace. Unlike his father David, who was a warrior, Solomon knew peace most of his life. Matthew Henry commented that when a church is at peace, we should learn God's word and concentrate on being edified by God's word so that in times of trouble, we would be able to practice what we've learned. Those are pretty good words, I think. Start out by uh, understanding if you're in peace to learn all you can because that peace may not last. The date of Proverbs. I've moved all the way down to date. Majority of Proverbs was authored by Solomon from 971 to 931 BC, with the exception of chapter 30 and possibly 31. Chapters 25 to 29 were indeed written by Solomon, but they were included at a later date, and they were included by the men of Hezekiah. Uh, date for that is 715 to 686 BC. Uh, so 
he wrote all these. First 24, definitely he wrote. The rest, the next five, they included and put them in the, the, the canon, if you will. And then the last two were included in by other men. The purpose, the purpose of the Proverbs. Purpose of Proverbs is to give the young, naive son exhortation and instruction in a way of wisdom. To give the young, naive son exhortation and instruction in the way of wisdom. Now, it is specifically written for the young man. The young, naive son exhortation and instruction in the way of wisdom. The New Testament has a parallel book of, of Proverbs, if you will. It's the book of James. It's not written to the young man. And I'm going to talk about James a little bit later on. But I'd like someone to read 1 Kings 3, verse 3 through 9, if they would. I need a volunteer. 1 Kings 3, 3 through 9. 1 Kings 3, 3 through 9. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give, what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to come out, or how to go out, or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Well, he shows a lot of wisdom here right away, but at the same time, it, the, some of these words will go back and, and condemn him later on, if they won't condemn him, but they'll go back later on and, and serve to just to show him that he made his own mistakes. First of all, notice there, it says there in verse 3, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Those are not the high places for God. Those are for the idols. So he still sacrificed idols. That was the beginning of his big mistakes. But he went to Gibeon, and that's where the tabernacle was at the time. He sacrificed there at the tabernacle. And he was sacrificing to God. He was doing the right things. He used a thousand burnt offerings. Amazing thought. And then he had enough wisdom to say, you know, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I need some help. And that started everything off as far as Solomon being the wise man. Uh, 10 to 14, let me read that for you. We'll just carry on with that. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. 
And let, get this in verse 14. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And we all know he did not do that. And I think you guys probably know that he died young. He died at age 70. So God did not, did not honor that, that promise because Solomon, he sinned against the Lord grievously. Solomon was 30 years old when he called himself a young boy in this. And I think it's interesting today that there are many people who are in their 20s and even teenagers whom I knew when I was teaching. They think they know it all. And it's amazing to me, here's a 30-year-old man who says, yeah, I haven't got a clue. And he had enough humility to say that he, he did not know what he thought he knew. So um, humility fits everyone. Humility fits everyone. Theme. The theme of the book is wisdom or fear of the Lord, and wisdom is always contrasted with folly. Uh, <laughs> wisdom is given for a foolish world. I, I love this. Uh, you know, what could be better for us right now than to give us wisdom? Because we're, we're just a bunch of fools in this world. You look around the world, it, it's like, you know, even, even high political offices are, are now populated by foolish men, it seems. Uh, spiritual reality or vitality or stability or certainty, all of that is going to be given uh, with wisdom. Uh, since wisdom is the theme of Proverbs, it will always be contrasted with foolishness. The wise person seeks to know the Lord and will seek to obey His will. Wisdom will allow us to evaluate circumstances and make right decisions in our lives. Haley observed that God has supplied to man a great abundance of instruction line by line and precept by precept in the Proverbs. So he wants man to know how to live and we have no excuse for missing the mark. I love Haley. He says, look at, we got his law, we got history, we got songs, we got Proverbs. What more could we need but his word? You just gotta love that. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We find the wisdom also includes knowledge, understanding, instruction, and discretion. These are given to the young man written to in the Proverbs in the form of obeying parental instructions, avoiding bad companions, and in general warnings of which wisdom cries aloud. I'm going to spend almost all the night here on this section called Know the Major Themes. And I want to go through them kind of slowly, and I want to have you guys participate a lot by uh, reading out the verses when, uh, when I uh, get to them. So, you know, get your hand in your Proverbs. It's, there's only 31 of them. It's going to be easy. If I say this chapter, this verse, it's, it's always going to be Proverbs. <coughs> Unless I talk to you about another, another book. But we're always going to be in Proverbs tonight. My favorite part is the God of Proverbs. And my favorite part of my favorite part is the second verse we're going to go to. But go to chapter 16 of Proverbs. And if someone would please read um, verse 1 and verse 4 of chapter 16. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And verse the Lord 4. The has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Okay. Plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. We can't even go on about anything we want to do without the assistance and the blessing of God. We can't even take a breath without the blessing of God. We can't even, you know, if you plan on, on going and visiting your family in three weeks, 
not without God's blessing. Everything we do, it's with the blessing of God. I just love that. But 16.4, I just, oh, I love that verse. Maybe it's my favorite in the whole book. I don't know. The Lord has made everything. Is anybody in here familiar with the term first cause? Does anybody know what that means? Yeah, Travis. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Bill. What, what does the word the first cause mean? God is the first cause. What's that mean, Travis? Um, it's, it's kind of a reference. Well, it is a reference to his decree. To his, uh, his decreeing all things that come to pass. So when it says the Lord has made everything, the word everything, what that really means is everything. I mean, <laughs> means all, right? God has made, the Lord has made everything, but it hasn't just made everything just willy-nilly. He made everything for its purpose. So he had a purpose in, in creating everything. And then even it says there, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So the wicked people, they're his creatures too, and they will serve him just like everyone else will serve him. And this is why at the very end we come to, well, God is the last end. God made everything, it's for his end. God, it's like bookends. God is the beginning and God is the end, you know, alpha and omega. We've got God as the first cause, God is the last end. I just love 16 verse four. From a theological standpoint, from a systematic theology, that's, ah, I just love that. Okay, go to verse nine. Can someone read verse nine, please? The heart, the heart of, man. of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Okay, this is kind of hammering it on home there that the nothing we've done that God did not purpose and there's nothing that has occurred in a world that God did not purpose. Think of the things that are going on today. Think of all the bad news we hear. If you just, I, I quit turning on the news, you know? It's like, why do I want 30 minutes of bad news every day? And that's what it all is. But you think about it, amidst all the bad news and amidst all the trouble we hear and amidst all the things that are going to be going on against Christians, specifically against us, we still know that this is still true. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There's nothing that we're doing that God didn't establish. There's nothing that goes on in the world that God didn't establish. Uh, just, this is so refreshing. This reminds me of Al Mohler right here, what he talked about last week. So number two, under the God of Proverbs, number one was God is sovereign. Number two of the God of Proverbs is God is man's maker. God is man's maker. We need to go to chapter 20, verse 12. What was the reference, Gary? Chapter 20, verse 12. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is, oh, that's 19, excuse me. The hearing ear and seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. Now, if the theme is God is man's maker, and if the verse says the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord God made them both, and the man who's teaching was an anatomy teacher, <laughs> you don't know how much this excites me. Let me give you a clue about the eye and the ear and just how wonder, fearfully and wonderfully it's made. We can go to Psalm 139 if you wanted to. I want to walk back and forth and go to a chalkboard right now, and I can't because i got a microphone here. But anyway, the eye is not quite perfectly round because the front of it has to stick out. 
And it sticks out because of the lens that's in the front of it so we can take our, the light that's coming into our eye, we can focus it. But there's a chamber in front of the eye, in front of the lens, that's got a membrane that kind of is domed around that lens. And in that chamber is water. But it's not just water, it's water filled with proteins and with salts and with minerals. And it, it's perfectly balanced so that the density of that water matches the density of the lens. And this is important because when the light strikes the front part of the eye, which is called the cornea, it can't refract. It's got to come in a straight line to that lens. And since it comes in a straight line to the lens, we have the same problem now going back to the back of the eye, to the retina. So back behind the eye, instead of water, now there's this jello-like stuff. It's, it's called vitreous humor, and the stuff in front was called aqueous humor. There won't be a test. But the point of the matter is, light comes through the, the eye and strikes the back of our eye, and it travels in a perfectly straight line, even though we have air out here, we've got body fluids in here, the body accomplishes this, this refractive activity, so we get no distortion. I mean, under most circumstances, we get no distortion. <laughs> but it, it, it just boggles my mind that this was supposed to just come out by accident. I mean, it just, what are you kidding me or something? Anyway, but, so, so that's the eye, and that's just a tiny bit of the eye. That doesn't have anything to do with the, the coloration of the back of the eye and the two different... We've got two different separate cells in the back of our eye. One is essentially determines light, it's black and white. And the other one is a specialized cell that will bleach out to a different amount and send off a different chemical depending upon the wavelength of the light that strikes it. What that means is it's sensitive to color. So what we have is we've got some of our eye determines color and some of our eye determines light. And yes, gentlemen, your wives, in all likelihood, have more cells in the back of their eye that are attuned to color than you do. This is why women, and this is, they, can, they can see somewhere in the neighborhood of three million separate colors. I can see about 12. I can see Roy G. Biv, and I use the word light and dark, and I use gray and or white and black, and I'm good to go. You know, brownish, I would say something like that's brownish orange. My wife would say, well, that's pumpkin. <laughs> That's light green. No, it's not. It's lime. What is it with you women and colors and food? What is that? Amber alert. Okay. Now the ear is even more amazing. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that all the every one of us hears real well inside of a room, and yet the air is we can't see the waves? and there's a disturbance in the waves, it's of a certain frequency, and sticking right next to the, the surface of our, of our eardrum, down inside of our ear, is, is this very heavy bone. It's called the malus. And the malus has got a lot of mass to it, but it's, it's shaped in a, such a way so that when the eardrum hits the malus, it vibrates more on the back end than it does on the front end. But if 50 hertz, in other words, 50... Um, oscillations per second. If 50 oscillations per second hits the eardrum, then it oscillates at 50 oscillations per second. It's exactly the same. And mechanically, it is set up so that it will then take this, when it transmits the force to the next bone, which is then, now, so that'd be called the incus, and the incus just changes its direction, it also goes 50 frequent, 50 oscillations per second. And then that goes to this little, little tiny bone. It's, it's, it's no bigger no bigger than your little tiny fingernail, 
That's, that's called the stapes, and it sits right there on your cochlea. And your cochlea's got this little tiny membrane on it, and it should be shaped just a straight tube. And it's shaped like a cone instead of a straight tube. And the, the reason it's a cone is because the longer frequencies would strike it closer in, the shorter frequencies would strike it further away. And so that made this, this cochlea cone so that it's got this different shape to it. So the different frequencies would hit the, it would hit the cochlea at a different time or different space on the cochlea. And that would mean that your nerve endings could be spaced at a different point on it. And you would just know mathematically where, the, where those cones would be, where the nerve endings would be for the different frequencies. And it's astonishing how detailed this is. Oh, and this would never fit inside your head. So God wraps it around itself and it works just fine. <laughs> it takes up no bigger than the tip of your thumb and it goes anything from 10 hertz to 10,000 hertz. Oh, and your bones, you're born with them full grown. They never change shape. They never change size all your life. If they did, you'd have distorted sound uh, as you grew up. Of course, now if you're an 11-year-old boy, you have a distorted voice, but that, that's another issue altogether. <laughs> It's just, it's absolutely astonishing to me. You know, if we get to the special senses in, in, uh, in anatomy and physiology. It was like April or May by then. And every bit, but then, I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking Psalm 139 all year long to them. By then, if they didn't know I was a Christian, they weren't listening. And if anybody said they were an atheist by then, I flunked them just on, per, you know, <laughs> that's it. We're done. So you sit there and you say, the hearing in the eye, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Boy, didn't he ever. And boy, did he do a great job. And you know something? I've got hearing aids and I've got glasses in there now. My hearing aids is because I was too many power tools. I wasn't taking care of myself. And my eyes are because I was too much computer work, I guess. I don't know. But it, it's my own fault. It's sin in the world. And I, I think that the reason why all those Old Testament figures where they would say to them that their eyes were growing dim, I think those were cataracts. And I think that was sin in the world, too. But I guarantee you that Adam lived 900 years and his eyes were 20-20 when he died. I guarantee, well, I don't know. I don't know that for sure. But they would have been. All right. I wanted to go to 1 John 1-4 to right now. But I think that'd be overkill. Um, somebody someday ought to do a sermon on 1 John 1-4 to because it starts off in the beginning... Uh, that which was for the getting, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. And it goes on and on and on. And at the very end, it goes, we tell this to you so that our joy can be complete. <laughs> Someone ought to preach a sermon on that someday. Maybe I will. <laughs> anyway. You hold it together. Yeah, I do. I got to practice more on that one. <laughs> but God is our glorious maker. And that would just be the start of the sermon, too. It, it's going to go on from there anyway. anyway I, I digress. Um, number three, so number two, God is man's maker. And the only verse I wanted on that was 2012. What else do I need besides that? Uh, God is man's blesser is 1222. If someone could please read that. And someone else could read 167. Uh, what was the third thing, Gary? First one was 1222. No, the, the third. Oh, it's God is man's blesser. He blesses us. <coughs> Fifteen seven. Twelve twenty-two. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. And sixteen seven. 
When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Okay, you notice here we've got this repeating theme here, God, um, delighting God. And lying lips, that, that's an abomination, but if we act faithfully, that, that's God's delight. And also you notice that the, whatever our ways are, how, whatever we choose to live, if that manner pleases the Lord, even our enemies are going to bow down. So we have this recurring theme we're going to see throughout the Proverbs of uh, being a delight to the Lord or pleasing to the Lord. And historically, you see men who were pleasing to God and how God blessed them throughout their days. Um, that's a recurring theme. Um, our rewards are given to us in this life as well as in the next. And as we obey him, he will bless us. Even in the Old Testament, God caused Esau to be at peace with Jacob. So, you know, we see that to be the case. I don't really have much on God as man's blesser. I think we don't understand God's blessing often as God's blessing. Sometimes we think it's a trial or sometimes we think it's, it's a test or sometimes we think, you know, God isn't being fair. And what we don't understand is as we walk through life, oftentimes God is blessing us and we just don't see it as such. We'll see it all in time. Number four, God is man's judge. We're uh, chapter 20, verse 27 on that one. God is man's judge. Twenty uh, twenty-seven. I got it here. Go ahead. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Well, I read that one. I wasn't happy at all. I said, "Does that really mean what I think it means?" But yeah. I, you know, I got my study Bible, and Dr. MacArthur basically told me. Yeah, that means what you think it means. So here's a question I have for you. It's rhetorical. You don't need to answer it. Do you live your life in such a way so that you're comfortable with God searching your innermost parts? You know, he does. I mean, do you confess your sins? Do you repent of your sins? There it is, you know. God is man's judge, and he will look upon us. Just saying. So the four parts then, just to review, for the God of Proverbs, number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is man's maker. Number three, God is man's blesser. Number four, God is man's judge. Next we have man before God. There's only three parts to this one. Now, Man before God, I think the first thing we need to see is the first thing that the Bible shows us. Man is a rebel. And that's 19.3. Uh, Nineteen three. Anyone at all? <clears throat> when a man's folly brings his way to ruin... His heart rages against the Lord. <clears throat> you ever know someone like that? They, they blame God when bad things happen to them. You ever, you ever seen that happen? Mm -hmm. Or anything <laughs> bad happens, not even to them. What's that? Or anything bad happens, not even to them. Yeah. If God exists, how can, you know? Yeah. 
God's existing. How can we have earthquakes? Yeah. Yeah. Why would we run out of bread in the supermarket? Where's your God? I mean, I mean, they, 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 have, they have no shame. Just everything is God's fault, you know? When a man's folly brings his way to ruin. So in this case, the proverb is addressing specifically when a man's folly itself, with your own foolishness or this man's own foolishness brought, brought ruin upon him, then he blames God. So uh, the fool does blame God for his troubles. And that's common today. It was common then. Uh, you ever blame God for your troubles? No. <laughs> I hear no. Number two, man needs to trust God. Man needs to trust God. Gary, you asked that question. About yes. Do we ever blame God for our troubles? Yes. I think whenever we complain or grumble, mm -hmm. we are inadvertently blaming God for our troubles. Interesting. We, I, we wouldn't want to call it that, but that's exactly what it is. We're complaining against the Lord's work. That's His sovereign will. Yeah. It's yeah. It almost seems like the minute you uh, see it as trouble, that's what you're doing. Whether you complain about it or not, you're, uh, you're obviously already seeing it as um, persecution or a challenge or whatever it is. You're, you may be misunderstanding what we you know, already discussed, the blessings. They may not look like blessings. Sometimes God's sovereign will is not our will. Sometimes. I know. I know. <laughs> Every now and again. Just saying. <laughs> it's been known. I know. Thanksgiving and why. Yeah, and... Uh, I learned years that we, uh, well, 14 of us, 12 of us were down there in California. Yeah. But we were spread out over three cars, so there was two cars in our way. Anyway, it was easy to get us there, it was easy to get us back, but once we were there, trying to get us organized as what we were doing, we, you know, finally about Tuesday afternoon, it's like, we're going to do what we're going to do. And we're going to try and get together and sit together, but. It was really hard just to visit about what you saw because sometimes we were seeing different things. And sometimes, you know, poor Chris, our, uh, our missionary, he wanted an In-N-Out burger pretty bad. You know, Haiti's real low on good ground beef and good hamburgers. And In-N-Out came on, was it Wednesday when they came? And the line was too long. Does that sound right, Mike? It was yeah, Wednesday? Yeah. So the yeah. line was too long Wednesday. And we ended up getting a hot dog. Well, I like the hot dogs, but they're, they're not an In-N-Out burger. Sure enough, Thursday night came, we were gonna go out for a hamburger. We went to this other restaurant that was not in and out, and they cost a lot, and it was late, and Chris didn't want to eat. And he was just kind of, his stomach was on the wrong time zone. Well, finally Friday, Mike, we made sure. We get up out of the last session Friday, and, or before the evening session, and where are we going? I, I walk over, I says, you're getting yourself an in and out burger, my friend. And then we finally got it done. Uh, so the heart of the man plans. Was he grumbling? Yeah, the heart of the man plans. But I, we, God directed your steps. God directed our steps, and finally we got an In-N-Out burger in his inside of him, and, and it worked. But you just got to trust God that you know if he didn't get an In-N-Out burger, it's really not the end of the world. And, and I think a lot of things that we think are important in life are really no more important than an In-N-Out burger, honestly. But all right, that's the only illustration I had off the top of my head. Um, man needs to trust God is number two. Man, 
<laughs> Back to the in and out burger. Man needs to trust God. I'd like to trust God. What was that verse? 1533 is the verse for that one. Someone please read 1533. 1533 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. Humility comes before honor. I want to spend some time discussing what is meant by the term fear. Fearing the Lord. And I also want to talk about um, humility. Fearing the Lord and humility. They're, they're not the same, but they're close. They're, they, they, have, they reside close to one another. Humility means what? Quickly. That, that's an easy one. Let's, maybe we get that one defined. We can understand fearing the Lord then. Willingness to learn. Willingness to learn, okay. A right view of your position. Okay, a right view of understanding. In other words, your position is not over but under. Someone is above you. That way you could let them teach you. Sure. I think it's a biblical view of self. Okay. So. We are the created and we have a creator. That view. Esteeming More to others. Esteeming others. Uh huh. Okay. So now let's look at that and put that in the in the context of fearing the Lord. But wait, if we did humility, don't we kind of need to define honor as well? Uh, I was going to do that at the end, but yeah, we do. <laughs> we'll we'll get to it. Yes. Sorry. No, that's fine. It was a pedagogical moment. You're fine. <laughs> Fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility and comes before honor. So to fear the Lord means to do what with regards to our relationship to the Lord? Revere him? Revere. Is that what you're looking for? Revere is very much what I'm looking for. It's, it's, a, um, uh, it's awe, it's admiration, it's, it's reverence. It, it's understanding that it's not just that that God is above us, it's that God is so far above us and he can do so much more than we can. It, we're, we're, not even, we're not even worthy to be anywhere close to where God is. And yet he came down to us and, and, and condescended to be one of us. Uh, we only learn God by analogy. We, we learn, this is what I'm like, so this must be, must be what God is like. And, and, and that's not true at all. God is, we can't compare him to us. He is, he's the creator and we're just the created. But this is what we have as our lives and ourselves and our own minds. But we have this awe, we have this reverence, we have this, this, uh, this admiration, we have this submission. And, and we're afraid from the standpoint of, of holding him so high above us. And if, if he is so high above us, we fear for, for in a healthy way, as well as we fear for our lives because we understand that, that he could, because he is God, he could take our life, he could, he could hurt us, he could punish us, he could, he could cause us to suffer because he's God, he could do what he wants, he's, he's sovereign over us. All of that comes into the fact, now read the, let me read that to you again. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility, I'm sorry, I said that wrong, 
The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So it seems we have time working with us now because we have one coming before another. We have humility, we have honor, and humility is going to come first. But the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. So as Wes said, we're going to be taught, and we're going to be taught, and, and our whole mindset is one of reverential awe, one of admiration, one of submission, and one of fear. And in humility, we will learn whatever God will teach us. We'll learn the, the big lesson, the little lessons, everything he would teach us as best we can. And when will we be honored? In our home. Yeah. That's our honor, isn't it? Does anyone get an honor here on this, on this place that's going to last forever? No. That's the nature of living on this earth, is, is that nothing lasts forever. And the honors we get here, you know, they're like in and out burgers. They just don't last, you know? It's the same thing. Uh, 16.6 is my next one on man needs to trust God. 16.6. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from the evil. That's good. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. I got stuck on that, on the word turn away. What is the word turn away? In our relationship to God, when we turn away from evil, what are we doing? Turning towards Turning toward God. Him. Turning towards Him. And what's the term that's used when we turn towards God? What's, what's the common term for that? Repentance. That's repentance. So it says here, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. It seems to me that if we have a Christian walk where we are always endeavoring to turn towards God and to obey God's words, that's repentance. That is our repentance there. People say, have you repented of your sin? I'm walking towards God. Do I still sin? Every day I sin, but I'm walking towards God. That's living a repentant lifestyle. When we have a Christian walk characterized by fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Just another nugget I dug out of there. I mean, this, this, this is so hard to teach. There's so much here. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I feel like I'm eating popcorn out of the popcorn popper here. But. Number three, so number two, Man needs to trust God. Number three, all men are the same before God. All men are the same before God. Twenty-two, two, and twenty-nine, thirteen. Parallel verses. Parallel verses. Twenty-nine, what? 29.13. I'll read 22.2. Someone else would read 29.13. 22.2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And 29.13. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. <clears throat> How important are our possessions? I mean, honestly. 
we're going through uh, uh, the whole estate thing with my father-in-law, and, and we've divided everything up, and you know, we're going to sell the house. And, 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 you know, there's a few baubles we keep here and there, but honestly, nothing. I mean, we're, we're very grateful that he had enough money to pay for his funeral. We're very grateful he has a little bit of money to pay for some expenses here and there, and, and we get a little bit. We're, we're grateful for that. But it didn't amount to much, and, and he knew that. He wasn't trying to become wealthy. He wasn't trying to do that. Um, wealth and worldly possessions, they're, they're completely unimportant to God. If God looked upon us, what would he really be interested in at the end of, end of our days when, when we greet him? We say, hey, nice job. You, you, you got a million dollars. No. What do you hope that God would say to you? The well done, good and faithful servant. Maybe that. That wouldn't be bad. I'd take that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we, uh, too often times, since we're stuck here down on this earth, I think too often times, we spend uh, too much of energy uh, worrying about things of this world, and we don't worry about whether or not we're really, really following God as He commands us. All right. So that's man before God. And the last part, most of this, is uh, personal conduct and man in society. There's a big one on personal conduct, and it's uh, 27 verses 23 to 27. A little tricky to get through, but, but not too bad. Uh, 27, 23 to 27, and this is diligence. Diligence. 27, 23 to 27. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the maintenance for your girls. Now, in Israel every 50 years, they had to turn the land back to its original owners. So if you were a big, huge landowner, 50 years, you wouldn't be a big, huge landowner. But if you were a big, huge herdsman and you had thousands and thousands of head of goats and sheep, you would still have them. That was the currency of wealth, was, was the, all of the livestock. So if you're going to maintain livestock, think about the, the I mean, my goodness. Once you buy land, it just sits there, and it's land, and, and you've got it. But once you buy a herd, you've got to check the herd. You've got to feed the herd. You've got to water the herd. You've got to check it for making sure it's not sick. If it is sick, you've got to take care of it. When it's calving time, you've got to deliver the calves. A lot of work with the, with the flock. So this is talking about diligence. This is talking about patience. This is talking about paying attention to what's going on in your life. You know, all the things that are going on in your life, a diligence with your family, patience with your, with your co-workers, with your job. We're given a ministry, every single one of us, when we go to our jobs every day to, to talk to people and to minister to people and to, to demonstrate Christ's love to them. And we have to be patient with them. We have, to, we have to show them day by day a consistency that's the truth of God's word. And, and you know, when the time comes, we have to share the truth of God's word with them. But all of our conditions and all of our circumstances, 
This doesn't mean, you know, everybody here has got to be a farmer. This doesn't mean here that watch out for your goats. This, this has a much broader, uh, much broader meaning to all of us. So diligence is the first, first step in the personal conduct of a man, and there's a lot of them here. I picked up uh, uh, three or four of them. Speech is the second one. There are five, five altogether. Speech is the second one. Let's go to 1523. This will be a fun one. 1523. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and the word in season, how good it is. Well, Proverbs has a lot to say about the words of a fool or words of a slanderer. But you ever know someone, and no matter where they talk, you just love hearing them talk? I mean, you know, I get, my daughter's like that. We were playing a little game at, at Christmas time, and, and it was some kind of a little word association game, and, and, and she just took you to the nicest little place and her little clues and everything, you know? And, and there are people that are just a joy to be around, because whenever they talk, they just make you smile, and they just, they just, they just, they just exude God's love. You know, and we ought to be that way. We ought to just pour forth from our mouths, just, just soft and gentle answers. And I love it what it says here. It says here, a word in season, how good it is. You know, an apt answer is a joy, and, and a word in season, how good it is. Um, we should be a blessing to those that we meet and those that we associate with. It's, you know, that, that's hard to do, especially some of the people we come up against. They, they don't make it easy, you know. Heaven forbid they have to hear something nice out of our mouths, but uh, it, it's, it's tough sometimes. I, I understand that. But that's, our speech should set us apart. Uh, not just in, in the, uh, not just in the selection of our adjectives, but in the flavor of our speech, in, in, the, in the gentleness of, of how we talk. Uh, humility, number three. Humility is number three. 1619. I read a really neat uh, comment from Matthew, Hem Ma Matthew Henry on this one. Could someone please read 1619? It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, what it's talking about there is someone who plunders the poor, the, the rich person would plunder the poor person. Um, and Matthew Henry says on this, the poor are, the proud are those who plunder the poor, but the humble is the one who secures in himself a quiet repose for his soul. I love that. A quiet repose for his soul. That just sounds great. A high-spirited man may carry the honor and riches of the world but he also makes God his enemy and the devil his master. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> you know, you guys feel free to throw in anytime you want to and just, just comment right away. We're doing, you're doing fine, but I know you're thinking, geez, how much more of this, Gary? You had four more pages, huh? <laughs> this next one's the tough one. I'm going to ask, well, it's not that tough, really. Of 1429, it's the control of temper. 
Is this still under humility? This is still under, no, this is under uh, man and society, or it's under uh, the personal conduct of man. Right. So it's number four, control of temper. What was the verse? The verse is uh, 1429. 1429 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. What's the purpose of anger? To express displeasure. <clears throat> to express displeasure. Succinct. <clears throat> Anything else? Any, any more we could add to that? I don't think anger itself has a purpose. I think it's the product of, uh, of uh, a lack of understanding, maybe an inner, inward sin. I'm just speaking from experience, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that I have, I would, and I said I wouldn't share this tonight, so we're gonna just, uh, I would get angry, on purpose I would get angry with each one of my classes, one time each semester, just to show them when they're really out of line, what I really look like when they're really out of line. And I, I started asking myself whether that was very effective, you know. But I could only do it once because the second time they'd ignore you. I mean, you know, I, I've seen this. This is all he's got. <laughs> and it was all I had. So, so I don't know, Wes. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe uh, to express displeasure, to express, uh, how'd you put it, Annie? To express displeasure. To express displeasure. Do we need to use anger to express displeasure? Could we use something else? Just words, sure. But we agree there's a proper place for some kind of anger, righteous okay. anger. I sure. know that we don't, our sinfulness gets in the way, but there is a proper anger when you see certain things in, happening in people's lives or in the world due to sin, you know, but still it's a, it's a proper expression of that because it's, really a denunciation of God, what that sin is doing. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Jesus, when he, he cleansed the temple twice, right. I can't imagine he did it either time without anger. Oh, I, he was calm. I just can't. No, he <laughs> oh, yeah, I just, no. But it was righteous indignation, and since he never sinned, by definition, there was no sin in his anger. So right. I have to agree with you, I think that anger can be expressed without sinning, but in our sinful nature, <clears throat> I'm trying to think back in my life of all the times either I've been angry and I, I was not sinning or I've seen others angry and they were not sinning. And I, you know, I think because of our sinful nature, we're always angry. But all doesn't James exhort us to be angry but not and sin? do not sin. Paul so, says that, Ephesians 4, 26. There you go. Paul says that. It's okay. a command Yeah. to yeah. be angry right. sin. And then well, <clears throat> the idea there is we're not to be <clears throat> dispassionate people. We're not to be, in, you know, just lackadaisical. We're supposed to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Mm -hmm. So the expression of displeasure, like Annie said, God wants us to align ourselves with Him. And we express displeasure over the things that uh, He expresses displeasure over. Yeah. And so I think there is a righteous anger that we're supposed to grow in. Um, but oftentimes, like I think Wes was saying, our anger reveals what we truly love and truly hate. And a lot of times that can be aligned with self. Yes. Pride. Yes, self and pride. And that's our biggest problem is, is, uh, is aligning ourselves properly with what, God, with what God's will is. 
Well, that's what I was going to say. Anger is an emotion that we express, but usually with humans, it's a emotion that we express when something is done wrong to us. It's usually us mm. or a negative situation that affects us. And you know, you mentioned the the examples of Jesus, and usually it was Jesus's anger was a righteous anger from the fact that he was angry with what they were doing that pertained to God, pertaining to yeah. his father's house, and yeah. rather than himself taking it. So, mm. or being false teachers, leading people astray. Right. I mean, for me as a sinful human being, if I was there at that time and somebody honestly was disrespecting the house of God, I would kind of be nonchalant, like, mm, no, yeah, yeah, that's kind of too bad. But, you know, if it was done to me immediately, I might dander is up, and it's like, okay, you did something wrong to me, there needs to be justice, you know. <laughs> but on the flip side of the coin, if I do something wrong to somebody else, and it's like, well, mercy, please, you know. <laughs> Rational, friend. Yes. But again, if we're there in the temple, some guy comes in with a whip made out of cords and starts turning over our money table. Pure, <laughs> We're going to get angry at it. <laughs> you know, there's an unrighteous <laughs> anger for that. What's that? I would be afraid. I would be angry. <laughs> That's just me. Yeah. I would be running opposite direction. But our anger is wrongly aligned a lot. Mm -hmm. Disagreements in the church should always be handled by going to God's word because it seems to me it's different when you're between two believers as when you're when a believer and a non-believer. But then again, you really can't hold the non-believer to God's standards. So I'm stuck in, does that person who's making me mad, and if I'm going to hold back in my anger, does that person really know the truth of God's word? If they know the truth of God's word, let's make sure they know the truth of God's word. And if they do and they still want, then then it's a different story, but I, I still don't know where anger fits into the whole thing, and uh, I don't know. It seems to me that uh, we get angry too often when we should not, as, as a general rule of thumb. Uh, be angry, yet do not sin, and, and I'm having trouble finding when that time is, when I, when I could be angry and yet I would not sin. So would you say the purpose then of anger is to direct us toward God's word so that we have a clear understanding of that? Yeah, I, I think that the whole um, point, as Travis said, is we have to love what God loves and hate what God hates. We have to be so perfectly aligned with God's word as that, look, at, this isn't against me, this is against God's word, you know, and we have to show them that, but show them that in anger. And that's where I have trouble because too often I only worry about when it's against me, and then, then it's pride, so. But anyway. Control of temper was four. I do kind of want to move on a little bit. And the next one, of course, is joy, number five. Isn't that interesting? They put control of temper and joy back to back. Um, there are two that really pair together nicely, uh, 14.10 and 27.9. 14.10 and 27.9. Fourteen ten. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. Twenty-seven nine. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. I find these two verses pair real nicely. Uh, we all experience a heaviness of heart, 
and no one should censure the grief felt by others. Don't tell your friends why you, you shouldn't be sad, you shouldn't be feeling, you should never censure the grief felt by others. Uh, we should always endeavor to give wise counsel from God's word poured from our hearts in kindness with patience and with love. So it, it behooves us to listen and it behooves us to be empathetic towards others when they are um, when they're grieving. And then the heart knows its own bitterness and is no stranger shares its joy. So that really was the opposite of joy. That's, that's how to deal with someone when they're not in joy. But um, those are the verses they gave us. And I, I thought that was an interesting uh, way to look at it, that you should never censure someone who's feeling grief. Uh, man in society is the next one. <laughs> Now, family life is the first one. There's two parts to family life, so leave a little bit more room there in your uh, outline for family life, because there's two parts to that, and the first part is wives, the second part is children. And you could say, well, how come there isn't something for husbands? Well, this whole thing is for husbands, I mean, everything else. I used to complain to my father that there's a Father's Day and a Mother's Day. Why is there a Children's Day? And she says, all the rest of the days are Children's Day. So, so family life. We'll start with wives, and we'll go uh, uh, chapter or chapter 12. Listen to me, 12:4. Uh, it is chapter 12, and then 19:14. And I've got another one in here too. So 12:4, 19:14, and then back up to 18:22. So we have three. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. 1914. House and wealth are inherited from the fathers, <clears throat> but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And then 1822. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Isn't it interesting that we find that the wife is the crown of the husband, is <clears throat> a favor from the Lord, but I didn't do a very extensive look, and I didn't spend hours and hours doing it. I could not find anywhere in Scripture where it says that the husband is, is, is a gift of the Lord to the wife. Oh, yes. But yet, <laughs> I knew. I knew. But yet, the wife is the gift of the husband. The wife is the... Is the Isn't that self-evident, though, Gary? Favor of the Lord. <laughs> Yeah. See, I had a feeling that was going to happen. <laughs> there was a, a time, there was a couple of young ladies who said they met Becky professionally. They were my colleagues, they were teachers. Because I met your wife the other day. She was a, a specialist teacher. She taught English as an English acquisition. And... Uh, my response is, isn't she something special? Isn't she neat? And they look, they stop off, you know, well, yeah, she is. And then I could just see the wheels turning. Okay, she's neat and you're Gary. She's neat and, you know, <laughs> what's going on there? But uh, I've always considered my lot in life was that I married up. I think every man, if he's honest, would go, yeah, I do. I don't deserve the wife I have, I know. I actually have a verse to back up. Yeah, 21, you have a... 
Are you going to go 21-9? No, no, no. Elkanah, Elkanah said to Hannah, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So she, wait, hang on a second. So what we have here is... know that she had bitterness in her heart and he did not he did not he was dealing with her with contempt it seems to me you spent all this time looking for that verse <laughs> I'm sorry you're going to make this hard on me okay actually all my king <laughs> on the other hand, if, uh, if you live with a quarrelsome wife, you might as well go in the corner of your attic or about out in the desert or something. So <laughs> it cuts both ways. Um, discipline of children, that's the second part of family life. 22.6 uh, is a much maligned verse, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, shouldn't be if we understand Proverbs, but it's, it's misquoted and misunderstood. And then there's 23.13. There are more like 23.13, but let's, let's go with 22.6 to start with. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And 23.13? Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. <laughs> And 14, I'm sorry. Let's go to 14 also. <laughs> if you strike him with the rod, you'll save his soul from shale. Okay. Corporal punishment is not merely lauded in the Bible. It's commanded we are to use corporal punishment. Because if you don't do it, if you strike him with the rod, you're going to save him from Sheol. It says, do not withhold discipline from a child. Now, 22.6 it says right there, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This has been used, this verse has been erroneously used uh, by, uh, by a lot of folks to say, no, no, I train my kids up well. And, and even though they're, they're walking in, in an apostate life, I know they're believers because when they were 12 years old, they told me they accepted Jesus. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. Um, it, it seems to be very black and white, the way it's written, but that's, that's the nature of Proverbs. So we'll talk about that in, uh, in our problem in, in, uh, later. We'll talk about that later. Man in society, number two. Uh, this refers to kings or refers to government, 1428. Someone would please read 1428. In a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. Yeah, this just goes to show that if people are coming into your nation, and if your nation is growing in population, you must be doing something right as the leader. Um, one of the biggest, uh, biggest evidences that, that Israel was was doing well as a nation was when Solomon was talking to the Lord in his dream. He says, you know, there are so many people here, you can't even number them. But I, I, it's a huge empire. And David was so proud of his empire, he even counted it and ordered a census when he shouldn't have. 
That tells you something of his pride, but it also tells you something of the size of the empire. <coughs> Um, number three, neighbors. We're going to use 11.9. Talk about neighbors as well as, uh, i got a few for that one. Let's just do 11.9 to start with. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. <clears throat> But by the knowledge, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. Um, with his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. This fits perfectly with James three, talks about the tongue and how the tongue is such a dangerous weapon. Um, so you, you don't just destroy people by physically destroying them with a sword. You, you destroy them, you know, by by talking bad about them. You can destroy them by slandering them. Um, kind of running a little bit low on time. Uh, we're going to go down to money. That's number four. Uh, we'll use 2811, and I'll just read that. 2811 for money says, A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. So, we see that the wisdom of this world is all about riches. There's a bumper sticker I saw once that said, uh, yeah, if he whoever has the most toys at the end wins the game. And, and you know, that, that's like, it's, it's all about me and it's all about what I possess. It's not about my character or anything like that. And that's the way the world thinks. But God's word tells us that uh, the poor man who has understanding will find him out. He'll know better. All right, I put the key passages there for you. Um, you can read those on your own if you'd like. Uh, you know, something I recommend with Proverbs, I tried this this past two weeks. Was, well, I did this past week again. If you've got like an hour to kill and it's going to be fairly quiet, get out your phone and get out the app and just have them play through Proverbs. And then when you get done of listening to Proverbs, just, just listen to it. You just, you start to hear all the, because to, to sit there and to get one proverb and memorize one proverb, you, you got to kind of see the whole picture. But if you just play all of Proverbs, then when you're done, read the book of James in the New Testament. It's such an interesting little balance to do that because James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And if you do those two things together, it, it really gives you a, a really good balance. But just an idea I had, and I thought I would try it, and I thought that was really amazing. And... Uh, I enjoyed it. I think you will, too. The order of Proverbs is the first interpretive challenge. Keep in mind that uh, wisdom is elusive. And to try and talk about wisdom, that's, just, that's an elusive thing. So the number one thing to worry about with regards to the order of Proverbs, they're random. Um, they, they seem to be in disorder. They seem to be disjointed. The whole thing is, it's, it's just, when you read them, it's like, there's, there's nothing here that... that leads itself to think there's any organization. It seems to be a mess, and it's not a mess. But keep in mind, the list is not comprehensive. The list is just representative. So under letter A there for number one, the Western mind cannot grasp the mnemonic devices of Proverbs. But there are mnemonic devices written in the Proverbs in the Hebrew language, and it just doesn't translate well. <coughs> number two, we seem to think that 
Proverbs work better in small ordered units. That's why we have the verses like they are. This is like this because it's like that. And we, we order them that way into smaller units and it seems to organize them better. Most commentators see this to be the case that there's, there's smaller units that are there. But number three, uh, the exact order that they should be in or that they were written in, or they, uh, we still don't know, okay? Um, we can't comprehend order. You can put this as letter A for number three. Um, there are verbal links between chapters 10 to 29. Um, we don't know the verbal links. You could read it through and, and keep on reading it. You might start to see them a little bit, but they're verbal links in the original language. Um, the assumption here is that God put the Proverbs in the order that they are recorded for a reason, but the reason is still unknown. So there's still a mystery to the Bible. But, you know, go back to the sovereignty of God. God put them there for a reason. They're in that order for a reason. We just don't know. The second interpretive challenge is the nature of the Proverbs. The first part, number one there, they seem to be inflexible. They seem to have absolute principles. And that's not at all the way it is. And I talked about that earlier, 22.6. People often use that as an inflexible. No, it's a, a proverb is a general truth, okay? There's going to be quote-unquote exceptions, if you will, but the general truth will always remain the truth, okay? They're not exhaustive. They're just general truths. So for number two, you could say general truth, I guess. That'd probably work well. And number three, they present a slice of reality. They just give you a slice of the pie, in other words. No one proverb covers all your life. In fact, you can read all 31 of these proverbs and you're probably still not going to cover all your life, but you're going to have an awful lot of principles there that's going to cover a lot of things in your life. <coughs> so the fact that they, prevent a, they present a slice of reality. This would argue against reading one proverb a day. However, I commend you to read one proverb a day and I'll tell you why. There are 31 proverbs, there's 31 days in the month. I used to get up in the morning, go for a walk and read a proverb and meditate on that proverb. And after three or four months, I got to thinking, you know, I kind of read this before. Well, that's the general idea, you know? Feel like you've read this before, maybe this will start to sink in and you start to read it and you start to appreciate it, the thing we don't do enough of isn't, isn't that we don't understand the Proverbs, it isn't that we're not reading it correctly, is that we don't meditate upon God's Word enough. And that's really been hitting home with me. We don't meditate upon God's Word enough. This would be a great thing to be meditating upon all day long, not just one proverb, but just all day, just maybe, yeah, one proverb a day. So if you meditate upon it, but you meditate upon that same proverb for a very long time, Maybe you get that one, and then the next one, and the next one, the next one, and, and every single proverb has to be understood as, as a piece of the whole. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Understand them all as a piece of the whole. So that's the nature of the proverbs. And I kind of rambled, sorry. All right, the speaker. This is in 8, 22 to 31. There are two thoughts about that. Uh, the first thought is that the speaker is the Messiah. 
I want to be clear, the Messiah does embody wisdom, but that's, that's not the speaker here. Wisdom is just speaking for wisdom here, okay? The second thought is, uh, 22 to 31, this is a woman. Well, chapters 8 and 9, um, we have the woman of Proverbs speaking here, and she speaks of both wisdom and in folly. Uh, wisdom is personified as a woman. Uh, and while the speaker in chapter 1 addresses his son, the wisdom in chapters 8 and 9 addresses the reader. But it doesn't really matter if it's the wisdom of the, the man addressing his son or if it's the, the wisdom in feminine form addressing the reader as, as the lady wisdom. They're saying exactly the same thing. So people start to split hairs and they start saying, oh no, the speaker of wisdom is the Messiah. Oh no, it's the woman and women are wise. And, and you know, there were an awful lot of Proverbs about the, the, the woman who was not wise. So we don't, need to, we don't need to start making the Bible say things that it clearly doesn't say. The virtuous wife, that's the, the third one. Uh, lady wisdom, it says no one can find an excellent wife or some of your versions say an excellent wife who can find. This has to be a personification then, or an embodiment of the Proverbs. It does not mean that no one's wife is excellent. Um, it could mean the literal wife and the mother. Uh, Ruth manifested these ideals. Certainly this could be a literal woman. Uh, the chapter caps the Proverbs, the book written to my son, my son. Uh, this is in at the very end. The exhortation is to seek a wise woman to be your wife from the Lord. So who is the virtuous wife? We don't know, but it is God's word and it is God's word telling us, telling the young man to seek uh, a wise woman to be your wife. And lastly, I added in, uh, after the virtuous wife, we have a section called how to interpret the Proverbs. I found this very useful. Uh, a little five-step process here. First thing you want to do is determine the parallelism. Determine the parallelism. In other words, this is like that, or this is similar to that, or the, that's the first thing you need to do is find the parallelism. And the author will probably leave something out or leave it blank, and you have to complete their thoughts of what is blank. Okay. Um, so the author will assume something, but they won't state it. You just you need to complete that. Now, there are going to be figures of speech. So the second thing is, is to identify the figures of speech. You need to rephrase the thought without the figures of speech and without the idioms so that you understand it in English. Because the figures of speech might not, they might not match our language. So the first one is to determine the parallelism. The second one is to identify the figures of speech. Rephrase it if you have to. Third one, summarize it in just a few words. Summarize it in just a few words. Fourth one is to describe the behavior that's taught. Describe the behavior that's taught. 
So the third one is to summarize the principles in a few words. The fourth one is to describe the behavior that's taught. Pretty much you're done. Except, number five, go find, go find examples in scripture that match what you just wrote down. And if you can't find anything in scripture that matches what you just wrote down, guess what? You did it wrong. That's right. Because this was, you're never going to get anything here that God doesn't have in his, in his scripture. But this is supposed to be a small, short saying to help you learn other parts of scripture. Scripture as a whole is going to teach you the same thing over and over again. And I really tried hard. I practiced this afternoon, and it came out to be right out an hour and 10. And I went to 10 minutes. I think it was because of our discussion on women and men and who was better. But Gary? Yes. Gonna, I'm sorry. Were you going to define honor? What is honor? OK, how do we get honor? When will God honor us? When will God give us our rewards? That's what honor is, is receiving a, an award. OK. OK. And we're going to get them, like Charlene said, we get that. When not on this earth, right? Anybody have any comments on the book of Proverbs? Any thoughts? I kind of have a question. Okay. Um, someone was explaining Proverbs to me as um, not promises of God. Not promises of God. It's not a promise that God made. It's a principle. It's a principle, that's correct, not a promise. Okay. So that's right. <laughs> yeah, because, okay. you know, it, you don't want to be too literal with them. Yeah. Like 22.6, teach your child in the way he should go and he shall not depart from you. Well, as a general principle, yeah. But, but kids go astray, you know, like, I don't want to get my daughter. I mean, I got, I got that going on in my life, too. So I, I think about that proverb almost every day. There's, there's a lot more like that, too. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Shall we pray? Father, your word is glorious. You are our maker. You are sovereign. You gave us so much to learn so much about you. It's just a wonderful thing. We are grateful, Father. We are humbled by the extent of your word. We can't fathom, Father, the depth of your love. We ask your blessings, Father, upon us, upon our children if they are over there to want us, upon this church, Lord God, that we would be ambassadors as we go out now for the glory of your name. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>